SAFM, leading the conversation. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. On SAFM. The time is 2014, and now for many South Africans, black South Africans, more particularly the change from apartheid to democracy, some nearly three decades on, mm, well, it's very questionable if whether or not those hopes were nothing more than hopes or hopes predicated on a feasible reality. The promise of equality for everyone was for many. This meant that years after oppression, discrimination, segregation, African people were finally making or supposedly making progress towards political freedom, monetary prosperity, service delivery, access to public schools, human dignity, and just the kind of infrastructure that really does facilitate human development. After nearly three decades, the unemployment rate in South Africa is officially at 37, uh, 32.7 million, and 30.4 million people are considered to be below the poverty line. The extended definition of unemployment, of course, increases to above 40%. So let's have a conversation as to what essentially is contributing to this, what South Africa's opportunities may yet be in trying to arrest this otherwise terrible trajectory for the nation's future, not least for its young people. Ms. Asanda Ngwasheng is on the line as a political analyst. Ms. Asanda, we've never spoken to before. Thank you so much for honoring this platform. Good evening and welcome to SAFM, a viewpoint specifically. Good evening and thank you for having me. I was worried we wouldn't be able to get hold of you. I saw you on TV just now. I'm like, I'm not going to accept any excuse <laughs> on load shedding or low batteries. So it's great to have you here. Yes, Young people good to be here. in 2023 versus young people in 1994, those are two very different people. What might you suggest are the main reasons why the hopes and aspirations of a young person in 1994 at the official turn of apartheid to what we now know as democracy, to what we have been experiencing for the last 30 years as democracy for a young person operating now. What can you say as to his or her aspirations or future in South Africa as it currently is? Well, I think, you know, before before we can even talk to aspirations, we have to differentiate between, you know, the kind of young person that was um, entering whether the university space or or the, the, the job market in 1994 and the kind of person that is uh, entering the job market or the university space in, in, in 2024, just to, to make it neat. Mm. Um, firstly, we as Black people, Black South Africans, are coming from a situation where your trajectory was very much determined fully by your race. We are now in a situation where your race still has an impact, but it doesn't have as much of an impact as it did in 1994. And so you'll remember in 1994 that people were getting bursaries to study uh, engineering, to study medicine and all kinds of degrees. Uh, and they didn't need to have, you know, 90% passes and 10 distinctions. The, the child of 2023 is needing distinctions, is needing, um, you know, 10 A's, etc etc in order to be able to access education and engineering the ability to get bursaries in 1994 and even i would i would say up until the early 2000s was it was so much easier so not easy in the sense that everybody was able to get a bursary but if you got let's say between 65 percent all the way up until 100 percent you had the potential and the possibility of getting a bursary in this day and age you need to get at least 70 percent plus sometimes even 
90% in order for you to get a, a bursary. So you have to be beyond outstanding. And the reasons for this is because in 1994, there was such a lack of black people in so many spaces that the few black people who were able to take post-metric education and become professionals were very quickly getting into the workplace and very quickly kind of being um, ascending to power and very quickly being able to demand a specific wage, etc., etc. That is not the case now because there are so many. So although there isn't enough transformation across many spaces, and here I can talk about financial services and I can talk about so many spaces, there has been a change such that there are a lot of black people in the workspace. And so when you are competing, you're going from, in 1994, you were going to be one out of 10 kids who have made it into the engineering course. Now you literally are competing with the entire 250 uh, students in first year course. And so that has implications for people's ability to have hope, for people's ability to kind of feel like their futures are guaranteed. And then the other aspect is that because there, there has been transformation, but not enough transformation, the economy of South Africa is not built to absorb the numbers of black people that are graduating and the numbers of black people that are in need of jobs, whether you're talking post-matric or you're talking, uh, you know, coming out of a university space. Because in 1994, we didn't change the economy. And so we literally were like, you know, we're coming from a space where white people were in power. Let's just add black and see what's going to happen whereas in 2023 we need to be in a space where we need to get to a point where every single south african child has as close to the same opportunities and possibilities um you know as possible but that's not the case because a poor white child still to this day in 2023 has a higher chance of getting a better education because there'll be a model c education or a former whites only education in a former whites only built during apartheid school and same with the university space for example whereas a black child the poorest black child is likely to have gone to a no fee school is likely to have been in, a, in an overcrowded class of 63 to sometimes some some classes even have 80 up to 90 kids in a class some classes even have multiple classes in a class um, I mean, there's there are so much apartheid institutions or legacies that have been inherited and from what you are saying that have not been corrected or addressed to the extent that they have been addressed certainly not sufficient to the growth of these problems to which you make reference to so on the other side of the break perhaps let, let's engage as to what is it about the apartheid system, bad as apartheid system was, but that clearly could have worked or should have worked in addressing some of the availability of skills or absorption of skills in the market in relation to those who are leaving matric? Now, in other words, the 18-year-old, the utility of an 18-year-old in 1994, that roundabout then, to, that uti- to the utility of that person around this time, and what are the contributing factors to what sounds like a move in the wrong direction as opposed to up? After the break, Mr. Sanang continues. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. Songhezomapete on SAFM. We continue the conversation, hoping, hoping rather, or hopefully we will also, in the context of this conversation and the cause of it, get some anecdotes of 
those who were young in the mid-90s, early 2000s, what were their concerns? How quickly did they find employment? And once they found employment, how quickly did they move within the organization or across organizations and disciplines and careers in pursuit for employment? And I want to juxtapose those accounts of the accounts that more than likely this year would be very different, say, to somebody who's in one's early 20s to mid-20s looking for work and how difficult it is to even enter the employment space, much less to move within it. Because clearly from what we are talking about here and some of the challenges that our political analyst has already so far touched on, it does seem as though South Africa is not in good waters. And I think that's obvious for many, but the question is why. So let's answer the why. What contributes to these challenges? And just before the ad break, I did pose to our guest, Sasanda, and I repeat for those who might not have heard it, what is it that could have worked or that was working about the old order and system that if it was just left to be, could have worked? And and when I say left to be with obvious minor tweaks here and there to, to contemplate the context and the change, that would have been perhaps something that this country might be benefiting from. For instance, I'm going to ask this against an anecdote that I can offer. This guy where I come from, LL Sebe, the last president before Brigadier Obatwazo, had proper agricultural schemes. These were good for food security on the one end, but also from a skills development on the other end. Colleges, agricultural colleges, for instance, like Fort Cox in those regions, were useful to get people where they were living in their rural homelands to get the necessary skills to work the land. That had a massive ripple effect in terms of how much the amount of money they were earning was circulating first. Where they were living, there was no need for them to migrate from rural to urban or to peri-urban, and as a result, there was investment, albeit in the home setup, where they were. Those schemes, in the Eastern Cape at least, formerly Siskai region, do not exist anymore. And as a result, access to food became a challenge, access to work became a challenge, and what would happen for young people? They would simply move to where the opportunity was. More than likely, if you're talking about that region, we're talking about King Williamstown, but certainly East London, maybe Port Elizabeth. I don't imagine that account is dramatically too different to most parts of the country, particularly in the former TBVC states, where that would have been, if you like, what was bound to happen. That anecdote, what do you make of it, and where do you think might be the opportunity that was lost, and better yet, that can yet be regained? Um, I think, you know, I, I really struggle to kind of have a conversation that starts with the premise that there were things that were good about apartheid that uh, we didn't explore. And I'll, and I'll explain what I mean mm-hmm. by that. So if you are, you cannot compare a system that is meant to develop and ensure the thriving of less than 10% of the population to a system that requires 100% of the population to thrive. And so essentially, if we were to take everything that, that was done for white people and replicate it for everyone, South Africa would be a great country. But what would that require? That would that's why I started off by talking about the fact that there wasn't uh, there wasn't a rethink of the economy and there wasn't a you know, unfortunately uh, certain factions of the ANC have ruined this name, but there wasn't a radical economic transformation 
to ensure that we are building from the ground up a new system for all South Africans. So what happened is that we literally just decided, let's just add black and then we'll make it up as we go along the way. So why is it, why is it important that I keep emphasizing this? Because you see, during apartheid, for an, ex for an example, and I take it away from, you know, the the example that you've just given in the homelands for various reasons. So during the during apartheid, if you worked for the SABC, you know, that's a state-owned enterprise, you could start at the SABC with a matric and the SABC would take you to school. The SABC would pay for your schooling and the SABC would nurture you and your job until you became, uh, you know, all the way up to CEO. In this globalized economy, the economy doesn't work like that. Nobody nobody works for 30 years for the same company anymore. No one is fulfilled by the idea of getting a gold watch after 10 years or after 20 years or after 30 years. And so those comparisons become very problematic because the expectations of people have changed. And so you, you talk about, for example, the agricultural schemes, right? Agricultural schemes were possible because people were trapped in homelands people were not in homelands by choice people were in homelands by force and so you can't talk about a, 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 a you know a, a population mm. that is essentially held hostage and just trying to make do mm. and say that you know things were working for that population that was enslaved slash held hostage and therefore we should replicate that we could never even if the even if the the, the you know the government had basically taken all the things that were happening in apartheid uh, for white people and replicated them for all, we would still be sitting on some level or degree of here. Of course, there's there's obviously the problem of the Zuma years and the, and the ANC corruption and all of that. And I'm not saying what I'm saying to sweep away from that, but I want us to focus and think about and think about a few things. So one of the things I'm trying to suggest, for instance, is that how many young people do you know now who are interested in agriculture? They're not interested in agriculture, and when they are interested in agriculture, they're interested in agriculture in a different way to the generation of 1994. And that is because they have a global perspective, right? Young people now have the opportunity to work for H&M, which is an international organization, and to be the ones that are, say, raising sheep and selling wool to H&M. Because South Africa is one of the biggest producers of uh, the biggest suppliers of wool, for example, to H&M. And so a person who has that possibility and that potential is not going to act in the same way as a person in 1994 whose only possible mm -hmm. thing that they can do as a black person with sheep is to raise them and sell it to the local community. May I engage and so, point, please? Mm, Here's why I said what I said, and I'm just going to limit it now to the example I raised in relation to the homeland system. For the same reason, a lot of the infrastructure that was used in apartheid is still in place now. There can be no dispute as to the utility of those certain things. For instance, the court system. I'm just going to use something which is close to me. The court system, it's, it's wholly inherited, and it functions for most parts, as opposed to it dysfunctions. Now, that is something that is an institution of the old order that is something we can now use and we are using and is serving this dispensation. In relation to the homeland system, this is what I said. What was working at the time for the people of the Siskai, who, absent that opportunity admittedly, certainly would have been destitute. 
absent that opportunity now, are destitute. There would have been nothing wrong to carry on with those agricultural schemes. They were committing young people to the land, and perhaps this land question that we are now having would have a completely different edifice to it, an engagement, if indeed this is a culture we'd inherited. Robert Mugabe even mentioned it in a conversation with Udali Tambo and people of the South, saying that South Africans generally, their relationship to land is completely different to the average Zimbabwean and his or her relationship to land, precisely because it has not been used as a source to engage primary questions of socio-economic development. LL Sebe, for the African people, did that. There was nothing preventing this new dispensation from capitalizing on that. It's access to land, using the land to advance other socio-economic challenges which we now have, including but not limited to social security. In KZN schools right now, they've got challenges with feeding schemes. Schools that not do Mama Beg and Zolama Beg, my parents were leading in those times, were using the land to grow food and children would go and make their own food through obviously community men and women. Now, none of that, certainly not to the numbers then, is happening. And I'm putting to you, whether it was apartheid or not, it was something that was working and it was working for those people, those people largely being African. It is no longer in place now. The same people previously who were benefiting right now are destitute. What is wrong with that? Two things can be true at once. Apartheid, for all it was worth, is a crime against humanity. I'm not engaging that as a thesis. I'm simply engaging these facts that pertain on the ground. Yeah, but what I think what I'm what I'm saying is I'm not disputing your fact that your your fact or your position at all. But what I'm saying is that it is a completely different context, in the sense that the very same youth who would have happily participated in those agricultural projects would not be necessarily interested in that because they have access to better and different opportunities. And so, for instance, I I spent some time last year traveling across rural KZN, rural Eastern Cape, and rural Limpopo, and saw and spoke to many people who run uh, who run agricultural projects, who run mainly food-based projects, and, uh, and some of them even funded by government together with NPOs. And some of the challenges they face, for instance, was that although there's high youth unemployment, it is still old, pe- it is old people who are the ones who are driving this project with very little participation from young people because we have created as a country in our vision planning for the country we didn't diversify our thinking on the possibilities and aspects of future that people have access to so we did this thing where we yes we closed the TVET, we closed the agricultural colleges we closed some teaching colleges which then drove everybody to the only way you can be a teacher is to have a degree, which was, um, which was a problem because what it led to, it led to this all-or-nothing system that we live in. Because right now we live in an all-or-nothing system where every young person wants to have an office job, wants to have a big house, and wants to have a, a big car. Otherwise, they don't feel like they are successful. But that is not just a function of South Africa. It's a function of the the kind of globalized world that we live in, where you have a, a Mark Zuckerberg who was a, a billionaire by the age of uh, you know 25. And so what I'm trying to say is, not only is it the material conditions and the policies that were implemented, it's also the global outlook that has changed such that the expectations of young people 
are very different. Like when you talk to a young person that's just stepped out of university, their expectations are so much higher than the expectations of somebody that was stepping out of university in the early 2000s or stepping out of university even in, in 1994. And, and part of the problem that we have as a country is that our economy, first of all, by not being transformed, but also secondly, by not keeping up and producing enough for all has led to a situation where those who do well are really doing well and those who don't do well get stuck and end up in a kind of cycle of of poverty and a cycle of um you know because one of the one of the biggest problems is, is is social capital so if your grandmother and your mother were not employed the chances of you being employed are very slim because you need people you need relationships within the system of employment in order for you to get employed. What are your thoughts as you're listening to this conversation? We're engaging youth unemployment. It's a depressing reality in post-apartheid South Africa. What about the previous system and or dispensation could we have used or carried on with to perhaps try and mitigate? Of course, we do have the benefit of hindsight 30 years on. But the reality is, and this is something perhaps we should also talk about if we don't have calls or comments or questions even, just even in the last five years, the quarterly labor force survey for the fourth quarter of 2018, now this is when President Ramaphosa took over, unemployment was sitting at 27.1. It is now sitting at 32.7. It has increased. What is it, is my question therefore, just even on the last five years, continues this downward trajectory, this weakening development and this increase in socioeconomic exposure for our people such that social services are busier now than they have ever been. To a point, it is a point, COVID-19, but to a point, it is not. Final comment, I mean, no, 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 not final comment. Do you have anything to say in relation to that as we punt for calls? 86 2032 fellow South Africans. Sasanda, do you want to respond to that, the last five years and the decline? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, COVID has had a devastating impact on a South Africa that was already on its knees. Remember, COVID came and we were already in junk status. And we've already had, you know, the 10 years of Jacob Zuma and state capture and the high, high scale corruption and everything else. And then COVID came and decimated us as a country, but also decimated the entire globe. And it's not only South Africa that's struggling with this. So it, it sometimes it feels like it's just South Africa, but globally, people are struggling. In the UK, people are dying because they can't afford, um, they can't afford heating and it's freezing there and so it's there's a there's a global economic crisis and a global economic crunch that's seeing all countries complain about high prices increasing um unemployment and just a general depression you know around the state of the economy and the unaffordability of things so if that has happening if the global you know the post-covid global world economic world had happened to a country that was in prosperity so if for instance that happened to us say pre-2000 and seven or so we 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 could have we could have kind of come up and been a little bit shaken but not as depressed as we are we are in the state that we're in because covid found us already on our knees and it kind of then hit us right at the back and and sort of had left us lying flat as a country both in terms of the the economy and also in terms of the the trust that people have 
in the government of the day to be able to lead us mm-hmm. out of this quagmire. And corruption, one of the biggest issues of corruption, over and above the fact that it it steals people's futures from a, a, a perspective of what that money could have been used for, is that it also steals people's hope. So a, a lot of kind of living, surviving and thriving is based on your ability to feel like your future is guaranteed. Or at the very least, even though I'm miserable right now, in five years' time, the situation may not be the same. And South Africans can't say that because you've got ruling load shedding, you've got uh, you know new corruption being discovered and uh, and and spoken about, and then you've got you know just the other day the the Al Jazeera released the the gold mafia um, the gold mafia documentary, which documented wide scale money laundering and corruption um, in South Africa and the ways in which our economy is being drained by you know. Uh, criminal enterprises in cahoots with the people that we have trusted and trusted with governance. And so when people do not feel like, you know, because sometimes we, we, we forget that economics is really, it's mostly perception, you know, value, the value of things is based on perception. If you have a good perception of, uh, you know, yourself and your country, you are likely to spend more money, you're likely to invest. If you have a bad perception, you are not likely to spend and you are not likely to invest. And so we get stuck in this thing where we, we see that there's corruption and there's a global economic crunch and we kind of pull away and squirrel away away our money instead of investing it and then we get stuck in a in a in a global economic you know crisis because nobody is investing and so it becomes the spiraling cycle and when there isn't leadership that inspires and gives you confidence that although we are in a really bad place that is going to change then we get stuck Fantastic. No, I'm sorry to have to rush you like that, but our time is up. The time is 2042. Mike in Newlands, just down the line. I have to take this break now, but I'm going to come back to you because I feel as though it is important for you to have your point. After the break, we continue. Okay, let's go to Mike. Mike, Mike in Newlands? Yes, are you, are you well? I am indeed. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Sir. Excellent. Yes, good evening to you and your guests. Thanks and, for calling, uh, Mike. Yeah, just... No problem, and, and thank you for a recent debate. I want to just quickly pose a question to your guest. She's, she's so right. I agree with her on so many fronts, but I'll, I'll quickly uh, beat the same drum if I may. Um, I, I went overseas. I came back with uh, a job offer from a company in Germany. Um, it would have given us uh, about 200 million rand investment here in, in uh, somewhere in South Africa, and at least 100, not if not maybe about 200 jobs. Um, I, I was turned down because the company unfortunately couldn't invest here because of expropriation without compensation. Uh, I approached um, various government authorities. I, I just I can't think of the gentleman's name now. Um, but I got nowhere because basically what happened was I hit a wall. It was the ideology of the ANC says, no, we're not going to accept money because you have to accept expropriation without compensation and our statute books. Now, I want to just, I'm mentioning that story simply because I want to ask your guest. We, we, under Tarbo and Becky, we had a 5% growth. We're now less than 1%, and it's probably not going to get any better than that. Um, do, do, do we not have... Is that not really the major problem? We've had a long debate that seemed very interesting, but I would put it to you that if we had an economy that was growing at 5% as it was under Tarbo and Becky, we would actually have half, if not less, of the problems that we have now. People would be employed. All these people that are coming out of universities would 
have a good chance of getting a good job and a chance to build a future. But at the moment, what we've got is a lot of people chasing very few jobs, and that's just no way to run a country. But I would also ask your guest, where does she see the ANC going with this? Because the ANC has said itself it comes first. The president's made it quite clear. The ANC is most more important than the country. Both presidents have said it. How are we going to overcome that problem in the short term? Because going forward, it, it's a very bleak scenario. Thanks so much, Sengeza. Thanks so much, Mike. Much appreciate for your call. So, Sasanda, I've got literally 40 seconds for you to give the best possible answer you can in the time to Mike's points. Okay, so I mean, the 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 problem the, the problem we have at the moment is that, as I said, not only have people lost, uh, you know, the confidence of the current government, i.e., the ANC, people are increasingly losing confidence in the political system itself. We've seen this in the fact that South Africa's voting numbers have been decreasing every single year that there's an election such that we now have you know an ANC in power because of a minority of a minority with the lowest uh, voter turnout we've seen since you know 1994 and I think that that's an indication that people a, are tired of the ANC and not just the ANC by the way also the DA because the, the, the percentage of the DA has decreased as well in the Western Cape they're not governing with the same numbers that they used to so this is a vote to say that we are tired of this political system and we don't believe in it. And that's a more difficult problem to have than when we're just talking about the ANC being the problem, because then the solution would have been just remove the ANC. We now have a problem of, Five seconds. first of all, 2024, likely to remove the ANC. But how do you get people to Asanda, the polls? I have, to, how do you cut get people, you. I have yeah. to cut you. I don't have time. Thank you very, very much. No problem. Nonetheless, Thank much you. appreciated. Asanda Ngwasheng, political analyst. Let's take a break, please.